Welcome to Sex Savvy, where nothing is off limits. I'm Kimberly Resnick-Anderson, your host and creator of Sex Savvy. I've been helping couples and individuals achieve optimal sexual health for more than 25 years. I am ready to share my unique insights and sex-positive approach with the world. We'll talk about hang-ups, kinks, fantasies, and function, what's hot, what's not, and most importantly, how to become sex-savvy. Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of Sex Savvy. I'm your host, Kimberly Resnick-Anderson. The title of today's episode is The Coveted Climax. We will be talking about the elusive female orgasm. I'll be sharing a little bit about female orgasmic response. We'll talk about the so-called orgasm gap. I'll be sharing what I believe are the primary barriers for women in terms of experiencing orgasm. I'll touch on the cultural role of female orgasm in our society. I'll be talking about how many women fake orgasm, but more importantly, why they're faking orgasm. I'll share some of the best ways to experience orgasm. And I have a great interview today with a colleague and friend, sex therapist from New York City, B.D. Cohan. We'll be talking about how she approaches couples in her practice and how she handles secrets. And I'll be chiming in on how I approach secrets in my clinical practice as well. Of course, we will have a sex IQ quiz. So let's get to it. In my very first episode of Sex Savvy, I spoke about the most common reasons that people seek my help. And for women, I would say that after low sex drive or inhibited sexual desire, concerns about orgasms are the most common reason that women come to see me. You'd be surprised how many women start off by saying that they're not sure if they've ever had an orgasm that they think they might have, but they're just not certain. And the analogy I give them, I think initially sounds a bit silly, but what I say is, have you ever sneezed? And they'll say, sure. And I'll say, well, when you sneeze, do you know that you sneezed? And they'll say, of course, I sneezed. So I'll say, well, like a sneeze, an orgasm is something that's hard to miss. It's a body-wide, intense experience with contractions and euphoric pleasure. And it's not a, I might have experienced that. It's a, oh, wow, I just experienced that. And I think with that analogy, women are able to say more conclusively, okay, I've never experienced that, which is very diagnostic because it, it gives me a sense of their baseline and their capacity to have sexual pleasure. Conversely, I've never had a man come to my office and say he's not sure whether or not he had an orgasm. I've never heard a man say that. Think about that. Have you ever heard a guy say, well, I'm not sure. It might have been, right? So hence the orgasm gap. And men know that they have an orgasm because it's typically accompanied by ejaculation, but there is such a thing as a dry orgasm where men don't ejaculate, but they still feel the pleasurable sensation of orgasm. But what I am hearing from men more and more frequently is that they're unable to come, that they're they're unable to finish, that, that they're not 
achieving orgasm and, and ejaculating. And the difference is that they know that this is happening. They're not questioning whether or not they're getting off. They're clearly stating that they're having difficulty getting off or they're unable to get off. The two main reasons that I, I say that men are experiencing inhibited orgasm or delayed orgasm are, number one, side effects from certain classes of medication, and two, dependence on a certain level of stimulation that they're accustomed to from looking at porn, and they're not able to replicate that same level of arousal to get to that point of ejaculatory inevitability. But regardless of why men may be struggling, they're clear whether or not they're having an orgasm or not. There's another cohort of women who seek my help who are only able to have an orgasm by themselves alone through self-stimulation, masturbation, and they've never had an orgasm with a partner or in front of a partner in their entire life. And they want to be able to share that with someone, but they're unable to experience that from stimulation from anyone else and even are unable to bring themselves to orgasm, even from self-pleasuring in front of another person. Then there's another cohort of women who come in for help because they can only experience orgasm from oral or manual stimulation, either by touching themselves, having a partner touch them or a partner stimulate them orally, or can use a vibrator or have a partner use a vibrator on them, but they can't get off from coitus, from intercourse. And either they or their partner or both are highly invested in them being able to have an orgasm from penetration. So those are the, the major concerns that bring women into my office. And I think that for a lot of women, they feel defective or broken or unfeminine if they have never had an orgasm or if they can't have an orgasm from intercourse specifically. So I'm going to talk with you about some of the barriers and some of the cultural and social stereotypes that I think get in the way. So we find ourselves now on the topic of the orgasm gap. And the reason this orgasm gap exists and is so discrepant on the side of men experiencing pleasure and women not experiencing pleasure is because we place way too much emphasis on intercourse, on coitus. And there's this notion that women should be able to have an orgasm from penetrative sex, when in reality, almost all women need some sort of clitoral stimulation in order to climax. And in some studies, up to 95% of women report needing clitoral stimulation in order to get off. So the secret to female orgasm is the clitoris. And I talk to women in my office who say that when they have sex, it's pleasurable, it feels nice, they feel bonded to their partner, they feel emotionally satisfied, they feel happy for him, but it's not physiologically stimulating. They don't feel like they're going to have an orgasm. But when when there's focus on their clitoris, either by the from themselves or from their partner, their chances of having an orgasm increase exponentially. Women also report to me that when they have sex with other women, they're much more likely to have an orgasm because other women seem to intuitively know that stimulating the clitoris is the way to get a woman off. 
So unfortunately, we are in uh, an orgasm-focused society, and men believe that if they can't get their female partners off from intercourse, that they are not a good lover or they don't have good technique or that their penis is too small. And you could have the best penis in the history of the world. And if a woman is being penetrated, she may never have an orgasm just from coitus because she's going to need her clit stimulated. So I think if men could take this pressure off of themselves, they could have more fun and definitely have less performance anxiety. So before I start getting hate mail, I want to state for the record that there are women who can reliably achieve orgasm from penetrative sex, from intercourse. And it's reliable and it's a sure thing. And they don't necessarily need any sort of supplemental stimulation in order to have a full body-wide pleasurable orgasm. It's just that according to research, these women are more the exception than the rule. So we've all probably heard about the so-called G-spot orgasm. The G-spot orgasm is still quite controversial even now. There are some scientists and physicians who believe it doesn't exist, that it's not a real thing. But it was named after a physician, Ernst Grafenberg, in 1951, who became the first modern doctor to describe that part of female anatomy in the scientific literature. But it really wasn't until the 1980s that the G-spot became a part of pop culture, sort of uh, the G-spot mania or G-spot craze. And women were highly invested in finding their G-spot, and their male partners were even more invested in finding their G-spot for them so they could experience this incredible orgasm. In the the main book describing the G-spot, they talked about clitoral orgasms versus vaginal orgasms versus what they referred to as a blended orgasm, which would be a combination of both a clitoral and a vaginal orgasm at the same time. And sadly, the message was that if a woman wasn't experiencing a blended orgasm, and with female ejaculation, mind you, that she was in some way sexually inferior. I'll be tackling female ejaculation in another episode soon, but it was associated with G-spot orgasm and still is. So in the 80s and 90s, there were videos, instructional videos, books, toys, you name it, to help women find their G-spot. And although there was a lot of progress made sexually for women during the women's movement and, and liberation during the 60s and 70s, especially around sex, we got the pill was available over the counter and there was sort of a celebration of sex and love in the culture and women sort of claimed their sexual pleasure. I think the G-spot mania undermined a lot of the success and progress that was made in that area, suggesting once again, a la Sigmund Freud, that women who were not able to achieve a vaginal orgasm and a G-spot orgasm specifically were frigid or inferior or not feminine. So I think that was an unfortunate phase in terms of female sexuality. So many people compare the G-spot to the prostate in men. 
And if you palpate through the anterior wall of the vagina, you can feel and identify the G-spot in the same way that if you palpate the anterior wall of the rectum, you can locate and identify the prostate. If you're wanting to know how to find your G-spot, the best thing to do would be to lay down on your back and insert one or two fingers into your vagina a couple of inches and make what's referred to commonly as a come-hither motion with your fingers. And if you hit that sweet spot and palpate and stimulate right in that area, some women report having intense orgasms, sometimes accompanied by female ejaculation, which is believed to be comparable to prostate fluid in men. Many of my female patients who have attempted to identify their G-spot report that they have an uncomfortable sensation like they have to pee and it doesn't feel pleasurable. Besides the G-spot, if a woman is invested in experiencing an orgasm from penetrative sex, there are two positions that are probably the best in terms of her chances of experiencing climax. And the first would be the woman on top so-called riding her male partner, and that's because she can control the depth, the speed, the intensity of the penetration from above. And the other position that women report a pretty high rate of being able to achieve orgasm from is rear entry. So there's some history for you, some instruction on how to find your G-spot, and also some other positions that might increase your chance of experiencing orgasm from coitus. I want to talk a little bit now about women who fake orgasm. We've all seen or heard of the, the classic scene in When Harry Met Sally, where Meg Ryan is faking an orgasm at a coffee shop with Billy Crystal and... It's sort of an iconic scene because I think it's something everyone can relate to. I've had hundreds, not exaggerating, hundreds of women admit to me that they have at some point faked orgasm. And I want to share a story with you from my clinical caseload that really speaks to the power of open and honest communication about sex. And it also highlights the consequences of not feeling safe and not being able to communicate honestly. So a couple came to see me, this was probably 15 or 18 years ago, and they were in their mid to late 60s at the time that I met them. And what brought them to therapy was that the husband had surgery and ended up with a colostomy bag. And he was understandably self-conscious about odors leaking from the bag or even possibly some feces leaking out of the bag. And so he avoided physical contact with his wife. And interestingly, it was his wife who after about a year and a half said, we should probably see someone and get some help because we haven't had sex in over a year. So they came to my office. And as I normally do, when I see couples after the initial session or two, I separate them and speak to them individually. And I take a family history and a sexual history. In the sexual history, during my individual session with the wife, she told me that on their wedding day, they were both virgins. And when they got to the hotel room on their honeymoon, it was sort of like the blind leading the blind. Neither of them knew exactly what to do, but they both were anticipating having sex that night. And as she puts it, he sort of stuck it in. She said it didn't feel bad, but it sort of hurt. 
And then he thrusted a couple times and he ejaculated. Well, while he was inside of her, she thought she better be responsive or enthusiastic in some way. And so she made some sounds, moaned and groaned, and made a couple of faces and allowed her husband to believe that she was orgasmic, even though she hadn't really felt any pleasure. So the next night comes around and they have sex again. And he sticks it in again, and he thrusts a couple times, and then he ejaculates. And she made the same sounds and movements and facial expressions, reinforcing that she was having an orgasm. Well, by the third night, she felt like she had already set a precedent and didn't know how to stop the train and went ahead and continued to feign orgasm. Well, this went on for 43 years She never told her husband that she wasn't having an orgasm and allowed him to believe that he was satisfying her. Meanwhile, she would stimulate her clitoris during masturbation and have satisfying orgasms, but she had never had an orgasm with him, from him, in any way involving him. So when she told me this, I said to her, you need to tell your husband, you need to be honest. And she looked at me like I was crazy. And she said, I will never tell him, I will take this information to my grave. So I spoke with her about the pros and cons of being authentic. And I convinced her that there might be some therapeutic value in being honest with her husband. And when he joined us for the next session, she went on to disclose that she had been faking orgasm for all those years. And her husband wept. He started to cry. And she said, why are you crying? He said, I'm crying for you. I'm crying for me. I'm crying for the sex life we might have had. Why didn't you tell me? Think of all the fun we could have had if I had known. You know, you you gypped yourself. You gypped me. And she said, are you mad? And he said, no, I'm not mad. I'm just so sad. She did, with my help, go on to tell him how she enjoys being touched and taught him to stimulate her clitoris with his hand the way she did. They also incorporated cunnilingus into their sexual repertoire for the very first time in over 43 years. So they ended up having a very mutually satisfying orgasmic sexual relationship. But it wasn't until she was able to be honest with him that they were both able to find that fulfillment. I really love this story because it's illustrative of so many dynamics around female orgasm that I want to speak about today. So why do so many men feel sexually inadequate if their female partners do not achieve climax from intercourse? Well, men interpret it as a direct reflection of their masculinity. And women have to be open and honest with their partners about the type of stimulation that feels best. In my clinical experience, partners are almost always receptive to feedback in this area, but women find it difficult to give this feedback. I hear from women that they don't want to hurt their partner's feelings or damage their ego. And many women, in an attempt to stroke their partner's ego, will fake orgasm, like the woman in my story. Although this may seem like the right thing to do in the moment, it sets a precedent that is robbing both parties of long-term sexual satisfaction. It's difficult for some women to allow their partner to witness them in the sometimes awkward state of orgasmic euphoria. 
Sometimes women will have an arched spine or their eyes roll back in their head or their toes curl and they get a very pained look on their face. And a woman must be pretty comfortable with her body and the context of the sexual interaction in order to allow her partner to bear witness to her in that vulnerable state. And women who know their own bodies and can bring themselves to orgasm and who, by the way, have masturbated during childhood and adolescence are much more likely to be orgasmic with a partner as an adult than women who never masturbated as children. So I'm going to talk now about what I consider the five barriers to female orgasm. The first barrier to female orgasm that I'd like to talk with you about today has more to do with biology than psychology. I'm calling this first barrier illness, medication, and health status. There are a wide range of illnesses, including diabetes in particular, multiple sclerosis, cancer, not just the disease, but the treatments for it as well, heart disease, spinal cord injury. All of these conditions can damage the physiologic processes necessary to achieve orgasm. Not only do these conditions affect women organically, but these illnesses may also affect a woman's sense of femininity, disrupting her sexual confidence as well. There are certain classes of medications that affect the orgasm phase and can cause sexual side effects. Blood pressure medications are notorious for causing sexual dysfunction. Certain antihistamines do the same. And there are two classes of psych medicines that can make it difficult to achieve climax as well as affect other phases of sexual response. In particular, there's a class of antidepressant called selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs. You've probably heard of Prozac or Paxil or Zoloft or Celexa. These are all examples of SSRIs. And they affect numerous phases of sexual response, but primarily the orgasm phase, which means it's harder to have an orgasm if you're on that medication. In fact, it's so common to have sexual side effects on an SSRI that I pretty much tell my patients to expect it. I don't say it might happen. I say it will probably happen. Because research shows that if you warn a patient in advance about sexual side effects stemming from a medication, they're less likely to discontinue the medication than if you don't warn them in advance. There's another class of psych meds called antipsychotics, which raise prolactin levels in the blood. And prolactin is sort of the foot on the brake of the sexual car, whereas dopamine is the foot on the gas of the sexual car. And antipsychotics that raise prolactin can wreak havoc on someone's sexual response. So if you were having no trouble having orgasms through whatever means, I don't care what type of stimulation, and then you're unable to do so after you start Zoloft or a new blood pressure medication, it's probably the drug that's causing your orgasm woes. The second barrier to female orgasm I want to discuss with you today is what I call cultural messages. Many of my female patients report unresolved cultural or religious beliefs that make it difficult for them to have orgasm. Negative messages about sex often become deeply ingrained and sort of leave a stamp and they subconsciously and sometimes consciously shape the way we allow ourselves to respond during erotic situations. I've had women say to me, I don't want to be one of those bad girls. Or I've had women say to me, I've denied my sexuality for so long that now I can't take it back. So messages that sex 
out of wedlock is sinful. It leaves some women feeling that, okay, if they're going to have sex, it's bad enough, but at least they won't enjoy it. And so they can rationalize in their mind that they're not enjoying sex because they're not orgasmic, so they're, it's not as bad, even though they're breaking a rule or a belief that they were taught. So what does it mean for a woman to achieve orgasm with a partner? Well, I think it means that she owns her sexuality. It means that she deserves pleasure. It means she can allow her partner to witness her in the vulnerable state I mentioned earlier. It means she knows her own body and is not dependent on her partner for sexual stimulation and gratification. And it means she can comfortably communicate with her partner about her sexual expectations and preferences. So if you are reliably orgasmic, then you are doing great because you will have checked all these boxes. Interestingly, research suggests a link between EQ or emotional quotient and a woman's capacity to achieve orgasm. The higher a woman's EQ, the more likely she is to have a climax. And for those of you that aren't familiar with the body of research around emotional intelligence or emotional quotient, it has to do with one's capacity for empathy, for insight and self-awareness. It has to do with someone's ability to identify and manage their own emotions. And women who are attuned to their body and their emotions, no surprise, are more reliably able to have orgasm. The next barrier to female response I call shame, trauma, and discomfort with intimacy. I want to share a story from my clinical practice. A woman came to see me, happily married, mother of four. She sought treatment because she was unable to have orgasm with her husband. And she told me one day, she said she was mortified because she had let a plumber in to go down and check something in the sink down in the basement, and she forgot he was down there. She went down there to do some laundry, and she was folding laundry and just sort of puttering around, and she started singing. And then she heard the plumber kind of move some tools, and she remembered that he was down there, and she was absolutely mortified. And I said to her, what's the big deal? If you were singing, you were happy, you were in your basement, who cares? And she said, oh my God, I was mortified to sing in front of a stranger. And then I asked her about that and she said, she can sing in front of her kids, but she would never sing in front of her husband. And when I asked her why, she said, what if I sing off key? What if I look stupid? And my response to her was, when you can sing in front of your husband, you'll be able to have an orgasm in front of him too. She thought I was crazy. She said, what does singing have to do with orgasm? And I said to her, how can you expect yourself to let go during sex when you can't tolerate the intimacy and the vulnerability of non-sexual situations as well? Well, she tried a couple of weeks later to have intercourse and have an orgasm, and she was frustrated because she couldn't have that coveted climax, and she got tearful and emotional, and her husband got tearful and emotional, and they had this sort of powerful experience where they cried and they shared their frustrations and they felt very close to each other. And he said, I just want to have sex again. I just want to be close to you. And so she said, okay. And believe it or not, she had an orgasm. And she said to me, you were right. You were right. She said it was the intimacy. It was the connection. It was the openness and vulnerability of our conversation in bed that 
I think, allowed me to have that orgasm with my husband. And then she said that she sang to him. So that was a great story. I want to talk to you a little bit about how shame and eroticism are commonly paired or linked up during sexual development. I treated a woman who was sexually abused by her older brother from age seven to nine. To avoid acknowledging the abuse, she would pretend to be asleep when her brother entered her room at night. She said it was easier to pretend I was asleep than to attempt to deal with all the confusing feelings or confront my brother. She says invariably she associates sexual response with shame because she said even though it was awkward and horrible when he touched her, it felt good at the same time and she couldn't reconcile those competing feelings. She said she couldn't allow herself to have an orgasm because she couldn't bear to recall that profound shame from her past. She hadn't had an orgasm for 20 years when she finally sought treatment with me. After processing that trauma, however, she was able to have orgasm initially by herself and ultimately with her partner. The fourth barrier to female orgasm is what I simply call relationship issues, unresolved conflict between a couple. I'm sure you've all experienced in your own personal life that problems between couples outside of the bedroom are often played out inside of the bedroom as well. Trust can be an issue if someone's been unfaithful. Sometimes your body doesn't allow you to relax and let go and get to that point of orgasmic inevitability the way it was able to do prior to that emotional betrayal. Issues like helping around the house and helping with kids or arguments over money or parenting or in-laws or religion, all of these things can interfere with a woman's motivation and capacity to experience an orgasm. Sometimes women will say to me that they intentionally deny themselves or withhold orgasms to punish their partners because they know that their partners are highly invested in their orgasm and won't feel satisfied unless they have an orgasm. So they're holding back intentionally because they're too angry to allow their partners to have a so-called impact or effect on them. And others are just too angry or too resentful to let go, even if they wanted to. Their bodies just sort of protect them and shut down from having an orgasm. The fifth barrier to female orgasm is aging and menopause. The normal aging process takes its toll on a woman's ability to achieve orgasm. As we age, we have fewer hormones, not just less estrogen, but less testosterone and, and progesterone as well. This affects all phases of sexual response. So as estrogen levels decline, sensations in the clitoris and nipples are decreased as well, causing limited blood flow to the genitals. As this vascular efficiency decreases, orgasm difficulties increase. Also, due to the decrease in hormones, Dryness can cause micro tears from intercourse, which can make having sex painful. But I don't want you to think of menopause as the end of your sex life. As Dr. Erwin Goldstein mentioned in my inaugural episode, only 7% of women seek treatment for menopausal symptoms, but we have so many interventions available and so many of them are safe. Go get a good lube, one that is paraben-free, to reduce your risk of exposure to cancer-causing chemicals. Get a good vaginal moisturizer or some moisturizer beads that you can insert into your vagina to keep things moist. Go to a pelvic floor physical therapist. We're gonna have a show specifically on pelvic floor physical therapy coming up soon. 
and go to a doctor, have your blood drawn and get a compounded topical hormonal treatment that is specifically based on your blood levels. There are laser treatments also available to rejuvenate the tissue and draw blood flow to the genitals. There's so many things out there. Menopause does not have to be the end of your sexual satisfaction. In fact, there's no age limit to orgasm in males or females, and women into their 90s are able to have an orgasm. So there's really no reason to expect your orgasms to stop once you get to a certain age. I'm going to throw in a little bonus here, and I'm going to say that another reason that women sometimes have difficulty having orgasm is because they are just genuinely lacking in information and knowledge about their bodies. Women expect a penis inside their vagina, which is basically just a cavern, just a space to facilitate orgasm. And sometimes they don't move at all. Or sometimes they move, but they don't know how to move. Sometimes they just need a little bit of information about positions that are more likely to allow them to have an orgasm. They need to learn to focus on their clitoris or maybe find their G-spot. Or there are so many things that women just truly don't know about their bodies that with a little education and a little motivation that they can have really great orgasms. So, how sex savvy are you? Let's take this week's Sex IQ quiz and find out. Okay, it's time for this week's Sex IQ quiz. The first question is true-false. A premenopausal woman's chance of experiencing orgasm does not change from day to day. Well, the answer to that is false. Turns out there is a best day to have an orgasm. And that day, no surprise, is day 14. There was a study published in the Journal of Sexual Medicine that showed that women's clitorises, clitori? A woman's clitoris grows up to 20% at peak fertility, increasing her chance of arousal and also orgasm. It's no surprise that nature would design it this way. If you've listened to my episode on sex, nature, and evolution, you know that nature's calling the shots. And if a woman's more likely to experience orgasm at a certain time of the month when she happens to be fertile, perhaps that's nature's way of ensuring the continuation of the species. I will add here that if a woman has intercourse and her male partner ejaculates inside of her, and then she has an orgasm after the semen has been deposited, there's a phenomenon called the up-suck effect. And the uterine contractions of the woman's orgasm sort of draw the semen up closer to the cervix. And so women who do experience orgasm, and it doesn't have to be a vaginal orgasm, it could be from manual or oral stimulation, but women who experience orgasm soon after or immediately after a man ejaculates inside of her actually has a better chance of conceiving if she's trying to get pregnant. Okay, question number two is a multiple choice question. Here we go. 40% of people under age 35 do which of the following immediately after sex? A, shower, B, sleep, C, eat, or D, go on Facebook or Twitter. Okay, those are your options. Shower, sleep, eat, or go on Facebook or Twitter. 
The answer is D. 40% of people under age 35 after sex immediately check their social media. Okay, here's the third and final question of today's Sex IQ quiz. This is also a true-false question, and the question is, men and women can have an orgasm without any direct genital stimulation. True or false? What do you say? Can people get off without any stimulation of their genitals? The answer to this question is definitely yes. There are many documented ways that people can have an orgasm that don't involve any sort of direct stimulation to their genitals. There's something called thinking off, which is a technique basically where men and women lie down on the floor, fully clothed, without any stimulation directly or indirectly of their erogenous zones or any other parts of their body. And they basically writhe around and move their hips in a rhythmic manner and think about having an orgasm and indeed achieve orgasm. So I didn't participate in this, but I was able to witness it firsthand. And what's really fascinating is that when studied in an MRI, the same physical changes that occurred from orgasm during thinking off were the same as orgasms from direct genital stimulation. Other examples of people having orgasms without any direct stimulation to their genitals include epileptic seizures. There's also something called a phantom limb orgasm, where people feel or experience an orgasm where an amputated foot would have been. Some people describe the ability to have a satisfying orgasm just from kissing from mouth or lips breasts or nipple stimulation, anus, shoulder, or even toe. I've had a couple men report to me that if their partner sucks on their toe the right way and palpates in a certain spot on the base of their toe at the same time, that they can have an amazing orgasm. I've had women report orgasm during childbirth. And I've had men and women who report orgasm during defecation or what's called forceful urination. I've even had a couple of patients tell me that they had orgasm under the influence of psychedelic drugs. So although this is not an exhaustive list, this is certainly a good example of ways that people can get off without any direct genital stimulation. So once again, the answer to that question is a resounding yes. So there you have it. If you answered all three of these questions correctly, then give yourself a pat on the back. You are sex savvy. One of the things I've often wondered about is not just how often women fake orgasm, But why? What is the motivation? What is the reason that they offer for why they are pretending? And when someone comes to see me, as I mentioned, I take a comprehensive sexual history. So there are certain questions I ask both men and women, and then certain questions I ask just men and certain questions I ask just women. But I decided to go ahead and conduct what's called a chart review which is a process where I go back into my medical records and I pull out certain data and then I make some conclusions based on that data. This is not a scientific study by any means, but it's more of a clinical study. And I found that in reviewing about 1,100 female charts, that's as far back as I could go, I found that 86% of my female patients admitted, at least to me, that they had faked orgasm at some point or another in a relationship. Now, that doesn't mean that these ladies aren't having orgasms now or that they didn't have orgasms prior to that, but that during a specific time in a specific relationship or relationships, they were regularly pretending that they were having climax when they were not. And I pulled out the five main 
reasons or explanations that women offered to me, and I'm going to share them with you. The first reason that women said they fake orgasm loops back to my story about the couple in their late 60s that came to see me. And it seems like women are keenly aware of this cultural investment that men have in getting their female partners off. They want to be the ones who bring them to orgasm, who gift them with an orgasm from penetrative sex. And so sometimes women will just pretend so that their partners feel competent and confident. They say they pretend to stroke their partner's ego and help them feel masculine. Other women have said that they fake orgasm to get sex over with. They say either they're tired or they're bored or they are distracted with other aspects of their life, or they have anxiety, or they are experiencing pelvic pain. Sometimes they fake orgasm to get it over with because they feel resentful or angry at their partner. And other times it's just because they know that they're not going to get there, that they're in a state of sexual neutrality and they can feel it in their body that they're not likely to get in the game, so to speak, and have that orgasm. So they'll pretend to get it over with. The third reason, most common reason that women have reported to me is that they fake orgasm just to feel normal and to seem normal. They buy into this notion that a woman should be able to have an orgasm from penetrative sex. And so they pretend that they do so that their partners perceive them as a functional woman. Other women have reported to me that they fake orgasm to come across as fun in bed. They want to be perceived as an enthusiastic and responsive sexual partner. They believe that it gives them status and credibility and appeal as a sexual partner if they are orgasmic. And so they want to be perceived as the girl who can really enjoy sex. The fifth reason that women have reported to me that they fake orgasm is because they believe that it genuinely turns their partner on, that them owning their pleasure and having an orgasm in front of their partner, even if it's fake, really turns their partner on and allows their partner sometimes to come himself or to feel satisfied. And so they do that so that their partner can enjoy the show, so to speak. Those are the five main reasons that women have shared with me over the years. There are other more obscure reasons, but those five reasons are the ones that really stand out. Interestingly, though, women aren't the only ones who fake orgasm. Turns out men fake orgasm too. There was a study published in 2010 in the Journal of Sex Research where 180 male college students were surveyed about whether or not they had ever faked orgasm. And 25% of the guys, one in four, that's a significant minority of the men admitted that they had indeed faked orgasm. It turns out that 80% of the so-called male fakers reported that they faked because they wanted a sexual encounter to end because either they were tired or bored or no longer feeling sexually interested or because they realized that an actual orgasm was not going to happen, either because they were too drunk, 
which is not uncommon in college, or because they had already climaxed earlier that day from masturbation or a prior sexual encounter. And I find in my office that the minority of men who admit to faking orgasm say that they fake because they don't want to hurt their partner's feelings, but that they're actually not sexually attracted to their partner. Maybe she gained a little weight or for some other reason, he's not sexually responsive to her or because the encounter is too vanilla. It's not exciting enough to get him to that point of ejaculatory inevitability. So he'll just pretend because he knows that he can go and masturbate later and have the orgasm that he wants. Today, I'm so excited to introduce my guest. Her name is Beatty Cohan. She is a nationally recognized psychotherapist with 35 years of clinical experience specializing in relationship and sexual health issues, as well as depression, anxiety, and addiction. She's the author of the book, For Better, For Worse, Forever, Discover the Path to Lasting Love. She is my friend and colleague, and welcome, Beatty, to Sex Savvy. So nice to be with you, Kimberly. So I was recently on Beatty's podcast, and I wanted to share her wisdom and expertise with my audience as well. So let's talk about, I know you you have such a wide range of issues that you address in your clinical practice, but I wanted to focus today on couples counseling, because I know you do a lot of that, and I do a lot of that. And I wanted to talk to you about your protocol and the way you handle an evaluation with couples, and also talk to you about the themes that are bringing people into the office. What are the concerns that you're hearing from your patients? So why don't you just start by talking about how you evaluate a couple? Well, a number of years ago, Kimberly, I was sitting in my office in Providence, Rhode Island, waiting for a couple to drive in from Newport. And they arrived and they said, listen, the traffic was so heavy. Do you do long sessions? And I said, well, no. And they said, well, are you willing? Are you willing to at least spend more than an hour? And that particular day for me was a game changer because in the last 25, 30 years, I will spend hours and hours, sometimes lasting up to five and six hours initially when I am beginning to do couples therapy. It makes such a difference. I'll just say that I do couples intensives where they come for anywhere from four to six hours a day for three days in a row. And what you can do when they know that they're not leaving in 40 minutes, when they're a captive audience, it's a game changer. I agree with you. It really is. And I mean, it really fast forwards the the process. And, you know, so many people will start couples therapy looking at the problems. I begin couples therapy looking at the beginning when everything, at least hopefully when they were dating and when they were met was lovely and wonderful, and they had all kinds of hopes and dreams that the relationship was really going to be loving and wonderful. So I take people back down memory lane, and as we go down memory lane, the people are then begin to really identify the issues that have gotten in the way and that get in the way of the relationship that need to be acknowledged and addressed and, and, and resolved. And what I have are two 
two columns. If it's a heterosexual couple, there is a, uh, a he column and a she column. And we start to write down, literally write down all of the different problems that really get in the way of the quality of their lives and the quality of their relationship. So after several hours, everybody is really pretty, pretty clear about what the work is going to entail. And that's step number one. And then step number two, and of course, everybody knows about this because they've read about this on on my website. They've read articles I've written about couples therapy. I then meet with the people individually. And it's really important, as we you know both know, to find out about the family history and also to find out about secrets that I would never, ever see a couple together if uh, one or both people were having extramarital affairs. I mean, I would not be comfortable, obviously, colluding with one person against the other, knowing that he or she was involved in an extramarital affair or anything that was actually going to sabotage the couple's counseling and the couple and being able to move forward. So how do you address secrets then? I have my own philosophy about secrets, but if during an individual session, let's just say the wife tells you that she has a lover, how would you handle that with her? Well, what I would say to her is that we're not going to begin couples therapy, that you and I, we have some individual work that, that needs to be done. And this is not a moral judgment. I mean, this is, this is a situation. If she has a lover, if he has a lover, and we're trying to do couples therapy, I mean, for me, it becomes so destructive and really something that is not going to be beneficial to the couple moving forward. So I would say to her, look, we're going to tell your, your, your partner that you and I have some individual work to do. And that would be step number one. And we'll see how it plays out because if there's an affair going on or another life going on and the other person has has no idea, what that would really mean is that I was going along with the affair. I had a secret that the other person didn't have. And I see that as just being completely professionally irresponsible. I agree. I agree. And one thing that I do in addition that I'll add is I will talk to the individual person who's involved in the extramarital contact and I'll discuss the pros and cons with them of telling their partner that they're involved in an affair. Or if it's an old affair, historic affair, like 15 years ago, I had an affair that I'm much more comfortable. I, I don't like it, but I can sometimes live with that. But if it's an ongoing affair, I will not agree to do the couples counseling like yourself. But I do have a conversation with the person about what would it mean to tell? What do they think would happen? And I also talk about the impact of having a secret, not just for the marital counseling, but for the relationship. You know, secret, there's an expression where as sick as our secrets. And so how can you work on this relationship if you have a secret, aside from whether or not you're in my clinical care, just as a woman, as a man, as a person, what is this secret doing to you in terms of how you relate to your partner on a daily basis? And also, how do you deal with yourself and how do you relate to yourself and how do you deal with, you know, the possible, the guilt and, 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 and the shame? Absolutely. So many of my patients have ED with their wives because they're cheating on them and they feel so guilty. They feel like almost like they're cheating on their lover if they have sex with their primary partner. So that's an interesting dynamic too. 
And I think that we, you and I, we, we are very responsible then when it comes to doing couples therapy because it's much more than just simply teaching people effective emotional communication and problem solving when there are all kinds of other things, you know, unbeknownst to the partners that are really going on. So I love what you're saying. So true. And so few therapists go there. So few general couples therapists even address sex. I get referrals all the time from couples counselors saying, oh, I'm working with a couple and a sexual issue came up. Can you take over? And it's, and it's sad to me. I'm thrilled to, to get the referral and I'm, I appreciate the work, but I feel like any couples counselor should and must have some basic competence around sexuality. Absolutely. Well, I thank goodness every day for my training, for my graduate and postgraduate training in McGill University in Montreal. I mean, I had wonderful professors who made sure that if whether we we're not, you know, talking about couples or whether or not we're talking about individual psychotherapy, that we had a holistic perspective in what it was that we were doing. Otherwise, I feel that we're missing the boat and we're really sabotaging the process. So much. I agree with you 100%. I did a postgraduate fellowship that lasted five years, specifically in human sexuality. So beyond my master's, I committed five years of my life to immersing myself in, in sexual health. And I couldn't practice. I don't know how people practice without it. I really don't. It's such an important part of life and relationships. And I've treated couples who've been in couples therapy two, three, five times, and they've never discussed their sexual relationship in couples therapy. Well, I'm, you know, I'm not surprised at all. And, uh, you know, if you recall on my show, I was talking about a study that was done through the American Urology Association with 2,000 men who would literally just come from, you know, a visit with their urologist and over 85% of the men reported that the subject of sex was never, ever raised. So there we have it. It's so disturbing and not just urology, but you would think urology might be a little bit more evolved in this area because of the specialty. But I teach at the med school at UCLA and the docs there that I'm training get very little exposure to sexual medicine. And research shows that family primary care docs and family docs don't typically ask about sexual health. When I ask doctors why they don't discuss sexual issues with patients, they'll say because they don't have enough time or they don't think it's important or they don't want to embarrass the patient or they don't feel like they have the competence to address it or they don't feel like there are interventions and treatment options available. So they, they just don't go there. I think if they were really, really honest, they would acknowledge that they are uncomfortable with their own sexuality and with the whole subject of sexuality. I think that's probably the real reason. <laughs> of course. And especially young male doctors, they report to me that they're worried they'll get aroused and manifest an erection if they start discussing sexual issues with female patients. So I work with them around all those insecurities and embarrassing worries. Well, to be perfectly honest, and I, you know, I talk about this all the time, Kimberly, in, in all of my years, nobody, not any doctor, not a gynecologist, not a general practitioner has ever, ever asked me the question, Beatty, how's your sex life? It has never come up. <laughs> so there you have it. You're, 
You're not joking? You're not joking? No, it's absolutely true. It has never come up in conversation. And all physicians that I have, you know, seen personally over the years, they all know that I'm a psychotherapist and a sex therapist and I'm open and I'm cool and it's easy. And the subject has never, ever, ever been discussed. You know what that tells me, Beatty? That tells me that our work is not done. We have to continue on our missions to make sexual material more addressable, more comfortable, and more commonplace. Absolutely. And we also have to give patients the permission to bring up the subject, bring up any and all subjects if their practitioners, their therapists, their gynecologists, their internists, for a variety of reasons, do not. So we have to empower people to really ask for what they need and, for, and to ask for what they want. And that's why you are on Sex Savvy, my sister. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the types of issues that couples come to you with that they want help with. Well, I would say sex and and money and child rearing. And what I've really found, though, regardless of the subjects, and of course, some subjects are more difficult to talk about than others, people are really, and I say this respectfully, but people are really lacking in emotional communication and problem-solving skills. They do not know how to say it. They don't know where to say it. They don't know if to say it. They don't know how to say it. They don't know how to do any of this well, so that they're really needing guidance in the art of communication, which of course, most of us have never been fortunate enough to really learn. And then you add sex to the mix, you know, times 10, because people are often uncomfortable sharing any aspects of their private emotional experience, let alone their sexual preferences or fantasies. So that makes it even more awkward and even more complicated for people. That's why I developed something called the Comfort Inducing Sexuality Dialogue that is on my website, where I facilitate a safe environment for couples and individuals to talk freely about their sexual history and actually come to understand and appreciate their unique sexual story. It's true, but what I've found is is just the actual art of being able to say, you know, I am really upset with you, rather than having it come across in a blame kind of a fashion, in an aggressive kind of a fashion. And, you know, I suggest to people, listen, if you have issues, you do not want to bring up the issues when you're running out of the house in the morning or when you're just getting ready to go to bed, that you need to sort of set the scene and say, listen, you know, there are a couple of things that I really want to talk with you about. And people need to be taught how to go from A to B to C to D so that there is, you know, a, a knowledge of, of what compromise means and, and, and trade-offs. And that couples need to understand, if at all possible, that we're looking for a win-win resolution rather than a win-lose resolution. So this is an art. It's kind of like tennis and, you know, I'm a, I'm a former tennis champion where, you know, you have a coach that's really looking at your strokes and guiding you along the way so that you're going to be able to come out with a positive outcome. I see a lot of couples, Beatty, who want help negotiating, opening up their marriage so that they can explore sexual contact with other people. Do you see much of that in New York? No, I don't, actually. The couples who I work with, and I'm just thinking, you know, the couples that I worked with in, in Providence, Rhode Island, and in Sarasota, Florida, that was not a reason, I think maybe 
hardly ever, maybe less than 1%, where that was a subject that was bringing people into therapy. What about recovering from an extramarital affair? Do you see a lot of couples seeking help for that? I have seen a lot of couples seeking help for that. And look, it's a painful process. But, you know, as long as both people are actually committed to working on the marriage and are committed to, you know, hopefully staying in the marriage, the person who went outside of the marriage, I mean, there are always, of course, there's always reasons. And it's a very, as you know, it's a very difficult and dramatic process. But if there is a commitment, what I have found that couples can end up in relationships that are stronger and better than previous to the uh, extramarital affair. This is why I love you, B.D. Cohan, because I tell my patients that it's an unfortunate way to get into my office because it's, as you say, it's so painful. But if couples are committed, they can reach new levels in the relationship, not just emotionally, but sexually as well, that they never would have reached had there not been an affair. That's right. And, you know, when we were in graduate school, I'm sure you learned, as I did, that crises are real opportunities for change. And sometimes, you know, and I say this all the time, frequently people have to really, really bottom out before they are going to be able to move forward in their individual lives and in their couple lives and family lives as well. So true. I just wanted to revisit something you said earlier about trying to help the couple recall the good old days and be nostalgic for the beginning and remember why and how they fell in love. I find that if couples aren't able to do that, if they look back retrospectively at their marriage through a negative lens, where every memory is now soiled, where every experience was fraught with tension, then that to me is a bad sign. And so that's one of the ways I actually assess couples in terms of their prognosis is how easily they're able to recall those good old days. Well, you're right, because some people, I mean, they, in looking back, probably feel that they never should have gotten married at all, which is why, of course, it's so important that, that people, A, are in a good place themselves, emotionally, psychologically, psychiatrically, you know, before embarking upon a relationship like a marriage, and that they actually know the ingredients that go into a successful long-term relationship. And here I am, I'm sort of pushing my book and my formula, but how important it is that people really know how to assess who's right for you and who's wrong for you before committing to any serious relationship. And, you know, if we don't know these things, and we're typically left to our own devices. I mean, many, many couples have said to me over the years, if only I had known, I never would have married he or she. So there's relationship education. I mean, it's key for all of us, whether or not we're single, whether or not we're contemplating marriage, whether or not we're in a couple's kind of a situation. It's ongoing relationship education. Well, Beatty, how can people find you if they want to read about your style and your approach? Okay, well, my website is bdcohan.com, and I live in New York City, and I have a private practice in New York City and also in East Hampton. And on my website is all the contact information that they could, so that they could reach me if they so choose. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today on Sex Savvy. I love your style. I love the work that you're doing, and it's so nice to know that there are quality therapists out there. And I wish you the best, and I will have you on again soon. Terrific. Enjoy the rest of the day. Bye. 
Thanks, Beatty. Bye. I just loved having Beatty on my show today. Well, we've come to the end of this episode. I hope you learned a bit today about female orgasmic response and the orgasm gap and some of the emotional and physical barriers that can make it difficult for a woman to achieve that coveted climax. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you next week on Sex Savvy. You've been listening to Sex Savvy. If you find value in this podcast, please like, follow, share, comment, or review on your favorite podcast app. Your participation helps keep Sex Savvy free and available to all who are interested. Kimberly and the entire Sex Savvy team appreciate your loyalty and support. 